on the virtual Bible study tonight. We're going to look at an article entitled "The Bible Versus the Church of Christ." I actually, uh, this is actually a tract that was put out by Bible Baptist Publications, and uh, the author is James Melton. Uh, we invited him to come on the program, and he didn't. And I think it's going to be apparent why he didn't as we get into the program tonight. Yeah, uh, his his track title, "The Bible Versus the Church of Christ," which is a very a compelling title we would want to know if the bible does oppose the church of christ and where and how and so forth and so uh, as you said we invited mr melton to join us on the program we got no response but we do want to review what he said because we think he makes some misleading statements and some actually false accusations concerning what we believe in practice. Not to mention the fact that he slaughters the scriptures and we're going to talk about that the virtual bible study starts right now It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study we're on the virtual bible study tonight for thursday march 8th 2018 my name is jacob Gwynn. my father greg Gwynn is here hello dad jacob great to be with you monty's behind the controls monty welcome to the program tonight thank you jacob it's good to be glad here. that you're here and uh, we're looking forward to your comments we're looking forward to hearing from you at eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven email questions at collegeview.com and in the chat room tonight uh send in your comments there about tonight as we look at uh this article which is really really uh, uh amazing how uh, inaccurate it's, it is it's off it's inaccurate and it and it really perverts the scriptures oh terrible uh, and and we just want to address that because you know when some of these things get out there on the internet jacob you know people will pick that up and say oh wow what about that well we want to say what about that we're not we we certainly are not timid about having our what what we teach and what we practice we're not timid about having that analyzed uh and and we we invite people to to tell us if we're wrong and so forth and so when someone has says, well, here's what the Church of Christ believes and practices that's wrong, well, we, we, we're anxious to discuss that. Let's talk about it. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, the author of this <clears throat> tract was not willing to engage in an open discussion, but we'll take what he wrote and we'll, we'll try to comment about it. We think we're duty-bound to do so. We believe that we should be ready to give an answer, First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, and so we will do our very best to answer the things that Mr. Milton has written in this in this Bible tract. Well, I think it's quite telling that he would write this and then not be willing to discuss it. If you wrote an article about the ba- the Bible versus the Baptist Church, and someone in the Baptist Church contacted contact you said, "I don't think it's accurate. Would you talk about it?" You'd be there with bells on. I, 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 that's and that's becoming uh, more and more frustrating for us, Jacob. We invite people on a regular basis to join us on the virtual Bible study, and most decline or don't even respond to the invitation. Uh, if, if if a Baptist program on the radio or internet asks me to to participate with them and discuss our differences, I, I, wild horses couldn't keep me away. Uh, what's what's the problem here? All right. 
So uh, let's go on and uh, look at uh, the article then. All right. So uh, we didn't ask any questions to our update list. Instead, to our update list, we we provided a a link to this uh, lengthy article. We're going to actually do it in two parts. We're going to cover several uh, shorter sections of it. The last half of it has to do with water baptism. Of course, Mr. Melton is a Baptist and does not believe that baptism is for the remission of sins. Lord willing, we're going to analyze that part of this essay next week. And so we'll be talking in depth about uh, what Mr. Melton teaches as a Baptist uh, and what we believe the Bible teaches about baptism for the remission next week. So we're just going to take the first several, I think about five points he makes, and rather briefly where he thinks he disagrees with what we teach on various subjects. But he starts out, the very introductory paragraph said, um, it's the purpose to expose the false teaching of the so-called Church of Christ. If you attend a Church of Christ or if you know someone who does, I challenge you to read this uh, study carefully, checking all of the scripture references in your Bible and praying for the Lord to show you the truth. And he references John 16, verse 13. Well, John 16, verse 13 wasn't even addressed to us, and it's not a promise made to us. It's a promise that Jesus made to his apostles. He says, Jesus said in verse 12 of John 16, I have yet many things to say to you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever things he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So Jesus promises apostles that they'd be guided into all truth. And so we don't, we don't pray for the Lord to show us the truth. The truth has already been revealed. All the truth of God was made known in the lifetime of those inspired apostles. Jesus promised that it would be so. Uh, we accept that promise as having been fulfilled. So all the truth, uh, it, it's not something we pray for. It's not, it's not something that, that we have to wait for God to show us. It's in the scripture. We just got to, to go to it. All right. So he begins then with his first uh, point, and that is that we fail to realize what the church is. Yeah. Uh, and we're not going to read all of his essay. Uh, I've, I've tried uh, to highlight a few statements that maybe really bring out what he's saying. Uh, he says these people, that is those who are members of the Church of Christ, believe that the true church ceased to exist for about 17 centuries and that their church was rest- uh, has restored the true faith for today. Uh, this would mean that such great Christian men as John Wesley, Martin Luther, John Knox, George Whitfield were not really members of the true church because the true church didn't exist in their lifetime. Well, I don't know. I don't. I, I, I'm just befuddled over and over again in reading this essay as to where he has come by his impression of the Church of Christ. I don't know that I know anybody who ever taught that the true Church of our Lord Jesus Christ ceased to exist at any time in right. history. Uh, in fact, when Daniel was interpreting the prophecy of Nebuchadnezzar, he spoke about the establishment of God's eternal kingdom. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, he says, In the days of these kings, the context will bear out, he's talking about the Roman kings, in the time of the Roman Empire, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall shall not be left to other people, but shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So, I don't, again, I don't know anybody who says that the church ceased to exist 
we don't have historical record of it everywhere. We, we, we can go way back in time and have record of simple Christians following the New Testament pattern. Uh, several years ago, uh, we interviewed a fella, remind me his name, uh, Sisson. Yeah. Can't remember his name. Anyway, a fellow in England who's done a lot of research uh, in England about the fact that true Christians were worshiping uh, Traces of the Kingdom by Keith Sisson. There you go. Uh, and and so we're just saying there there is a lot of historical information about Christians just following the New Testament pattern, but that's really not it's not essential to us. Uh, we believe the kingdom was established in the first century in Mark chapter nine at verse one. Uh, Jesus said, there be some standing here uh, which shall not taste of death until they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. We believe they did. We believe the kingdom was established. Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. When the gospel was preached, the kingdom was established. The kingdom and church are terms that are used synonymously synonymously and interchangeably. Uh, And we believe that church has continued to exist and exists in the world today. Uh, And so... We disavow that statement that the church ceased to exist. It's a it's a true straw man argument. He makes it without any uh, without any um, support for the statement he's making. That oh, they believe that the church ceased to exist for seventeen centuries, and then he goes to knock down that straw man. Yeah, with he his said, next paragraph. He, in the next paragraph, he Which says Jesus said in Matthew sixteen eighteen, "I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it." And then he goes on to conclude the true church has existed ever since the day Jesus started. We Amen. believe it. We agree with that. Yeah. So he, he, has, he has made a claim about what we believe that is not true. But then he mentions that great Christian men like John Wesley uh, uh, and, and uh, John Knox and George Whitfield, who were all Methodists, Martin Luther, who, of course, established uh, not willingly, but ended up establishing the Lutheran church. He says, we're saying that these men were not members of the true church because the true church didn't exist in their lifetime. We're not establishing ourselves as judges over John Wesley, Martin Luther, John Knox, or George Whitfield, or anybody else for that matter. Uh, we do have the advantage of a lot of the writings that they did, and I don't think they were completely on the truth. I, I doubt that Mr. Melton believes that those guys were all right on the truth. I don't think he would agree with everything they believed. But it's not our place to judge them. We don't have to. All we all we our job is to do is to know God's truth and live it in our time. All right. That's all we're trying to do. All right. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven questions at collegeview dot com. Uh certainly we don't believe that the church ceased to exist. We do believe that we can be part of that church that uh, Christ established by doing what he said, by following the pattern and the instruction that he said. And uh, if we don't, we don't believe that uh, we're pleasing to him and we're not in his yeah. church. Money, any thoughts? Well, like you say, whether these guys were Christians or not, it's tro- totally irrelevant. The important thing for us is that we're supposed to be doing what the Bible says, and if we do what the Bible says, we'll be what those people were, and that's Christians. Uh the church, we have no reason or no evidence to suggest that it ceased to exist at any point in time. So I really feel like he's false rep- falsely yeah. represented us there because I've never heard that uh, taught in my no, life. No. I'm 56 years old, and I've never heard anybody teach that. Yeah, so I, I don't think either. that's a teaching from uh, sound churches of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We, that's what we believe about the kingdom. And so, he, again, just right out of the box, 
Mr. Melton in his tract has misrepresented us as to what we believe, and and that sort of that that tone continues. It doesn't the, get any better. Mohan in Illinois says regarding what is the church, where he says salvation is not in the church. I would respond by going to Acts and indicate that the Lord adds someone to His church when we become saved, and we sort of skip part of that where He mentioned the fact that. Uh, it doesn't matter what church you're in, uh, you're going to be saved. He said, I would respond by going to Acts and indicate the Lord adds someone to his church when we become saved. There's a misconception today on what the church is. Also, when he says you are a member of the true church, if you receive Christ as your Savior, no matter what denomination you belong to, I would answer by saying to be saved, you cannot just receive Christ as Savior and follow any so-called man-made Christian faith out there. We have to find a local body that follows only with the, the one faith found in the Bible. The author does not mention repentance, confession, and baptism as requirements for salvation or even receiving Christ as Lord when he mentions receiving Christ as Savior to be saved. Finally, I don't know anyone who believes the true church ceased to exist for hundreds of years. When I was an ex-Baptist, I would probably have agreed with some of what the author has written and disagreed with other things he has written. Thanks, Moan. Thanks, Moan. We appreciate you. Uh, And and again... uh, it just it's just a false representation. Let's take a break, Jacob, and come back. We're going to talk about the name of the church. He has somewhat to say about that. All right, when we get back, we'll continue the discussion. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hello, everyone. I'm Britt Haynes. I'm a member of the College View Church of Christ. A lot of people in the religious tell us that as long as our heart is right and we truly love God, we can do whatever we want in our service to Him. They say that what we do doesn't matter because God is only interested in our heart. I believe they have it all wrong. True, God is interested in our hearts, but He's also interested in our actions. One reason why is because our actions describe the true condition of our heart. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 12, verse 34, when he said, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. So I believe that if we are doing whatever we want to in our service and are not serving God exactly like he has asked, then our heart is not right before God. The members of the College View Church of Christ are committed to making sure that both our hearts and our actions are pleasing to God. If you're interested in doing the same, we encourage you to join us for worship this Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. Here's some quotes worth pondering. The value of life lies not in the length of days, but in the use we make of them. A man may live long, yet live very little. He doeth much that loveth much. Every man has an equal chance to become greater than he is. Be careful of your thoughts, they may break into words at any time. Man, wish I'd said that. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. We're back on the program as we look at a tract by James Melton, The Bible versus the Church of Christ. And uh, we look at his uh, statements, and they are quite uh, appalling. Uh, and the blatant misuse of scriptures. Kent in Calhoun, Georgia, has responded tonight. He says the New Testament church and its universal extension is indeed a spiritual organism that contains all individuals who have been saved from their past sins. The problem with Mr. Melton's reasoning is that he does not understand the true gospel plan of salvation, faith, repentance, confession of Christ, and baptism for the remission of sins. He denies such truth and falsely affirms salvation by faith alone or faith only. Melton also has a fatally false view of the church and its universal extension. He views the church as being transdenominational or interdenominational of all believers. 
And he uses that term in quote, believers. He also free, falsely accuses us of believing that the universal extension of the church is what he terms a, as a physical body. Perhaps by that he is referring to a local church. Obviously, the universal extension of the church is not a local congregation of Christians. Neither is the universal church comprised of local churches. It is a saved relationship of individuals who have been scripturally baptized into the one spiritual body. The New Testament, the local New Testament church is very important, such as the only divinely authorized means through which a group of Christians may scripturally, in a collective way, uh, accomplish the work that God has assigned to the church. However, whereas one is baptized into the universal extension of the church, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, one identifies with the local church by agreement, fellowship, and work, Acts 9, verse 26. In either the universal or local sense regarding the church, such is not, as Melton termed it, our particular group of people. If one has genuinely obeyed the gospel of Christ and is identified with a faithful local New Testament church, such is not our group, such has been purchased by the blood of Christ and belongs to him. Anything smaller than the totality of all the saved and larger than a local church is not the church of the Lord. Baptists in their various arrangements do not classify as the New Testament church. As Christians, we are not members of two churches, one universal and another local we are members of one church with both universal and local extensions. That's a good explanation there, Kent. We Thank appreciate you, Kent. you for sending that in. All right. He goes on and makes some very uh, amazing statements Isn't about it? the church name. that He says he's got a beef with, our, with the way we identify ourselves. He says the, in, a, in the next section of his essay entitled The Church Name, he says the Church of Christ claims to reserve for itself the only scriptural name for a New Testament church. Although, he says, the term Church of Christ is found nowhere in the Bible. All right, underline that and remind, remember that. The Church okay. of Christ is found nowhere in the Bible. The term is never and, found. And also that we claim there is only one scriptural name. That's, that's right. What, he says okay. that's what we claim. He, 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 he quotes a tract by George Bailey, whom I do not know, but the name of the tract is Why I Am a Member of the Church of Christ. And he's, and, and he, Quotes these words, quote, since the church belongs to Christ, shouldn't the church be so called? It is certainly scriptural to refer to the Lord's body as the church of or belonging to Christ. Now, just in that little excerpt that he's pulled out there, you can tell by the way the author has written that, that that he's not insisting that church of Christ is the only way you could identify a local body of believers. But says that it is a scriptural way. Scriptural way. Okay. Uh, He says, now, this is Melton. Melton goes on now to say there is nothing particularly wrong with the term Church of Christ, but is wrong to insist that this is the only scriptural name for the church when the term isn't even found in the Bible. <laughs> uh, he's, then he quotes uh, 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 another tract called A Bookmark of Basic Bible References by John Hurt. And he says, this gives several scriptural references to prove that the term Church of Christ is the only scriptural name for the church. The references listed in this book are Romans 16, 16, Acts 4, 12, Matthew 16, 18, Philippians 2, 9, and 10, Isaiah 62, 2, Colossians 3, 17. The, church, the term Church of Christ is found nowhere in any of those references. Well, I, I mean, think, I, I, think, I don't... I, I don't understand how he could say that. I mean, it's it's in Romans 16. I think 16. it's maybe a little sleight of hand because it does say churches of Christ Romans in Romans 16, 16. Romans 16, 16, the churches of Christ salute you. I think that's what's just so stunning about his words. That's obviously a scriptural designation uh, in the scripture. When it mentions churches, it's obviously talking about individual congregations there. 
church, the churches of Christ salute you. I mean, that's that's pretty stunning, and I, I I'm I'm rather appalled that he would make that statement. But but so first of all, it it's is disin- found, it's disingenuous the the statement. This is uh, not found anywhere in the Bible. Well, it is found in the Bible, and Romans sixteen sixteen calls it out specifically. But then the other part of that, which is also so desperately wrong, is to 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 label us as insistingly scriptural name for the church. We don't do that. I, again, Monty, I don't know anybody. I, I don't think I've ever come across anybody who said that's the only name in the in the Bible for the church. Uh, I've been a, from the time I was born. I've been brought to Church of Christ, and I've been a member of the Church of Christ since I was thirteen. And I've never heard anybody say that's the only name. Uh, we could, find, as we study through the New Testament, we could find several different references to different it's names. Called, it's that called the Church of God, the Church, Church of the, the Firstborn, and others. There's several other names that yeah. are referenced in the New Testament. Yeah. So we're not insisting that that's the only name. That's just a one. We have we use one of many names that is called Tom commonly so that we can identify ourselves. Yeah, but that again, there's false accusation made. First of all, he misuses the Scripture by saying that that terminology is not in the Scripture when it clearly is, but then to accuse us of something that we don't believe, that that's the only uh, scriptural name for the church. We don't believe that. Uh, it, it just, it's, it's really, uh, I mean, it's, this, that doesn't just represent a, uh, a disagreement that we have. That's a false accusation, which is just not ethical or honorable. All right. It, it goes on in the article. We'll find here. Uh, Kent says, it is true that the New Testament church is not limited to only one designation. We read of multiple designations in the New Testament referring to the church. Mr. Melton denies that the phrase Church of Christ is found in the New Testament. Mr. Melton is wrong, as wrong can be on this point. In Matthew sixteen eighteen, Christ stated, "I will build my church." Because Christ is the builder, that means this means the church is the church universally has New Testament authority to be referred to as the Church of Christ. Regarding local New Testament churches, Romans or chapter sixteen verse sixteen, local churches were referred to. If a group of local churches may scripturally refer to themselves as churches of Christ, and they do. According to Romans sixteen sixteen, then one of those churches, or all of, or all of the uh, local on a local basis, may refer to themselves as a church of Christ. The problem that faces Mr. Melton squarely in the face is demonstrating from the scriptures of usage of the term Baptist, Baptist churches, missionary Baptist churches, or any kind of Baptist churches. Not only that, he cannot demonstrate any type of denominational church or transnominational church in the name or arrangement from the New Testament. Certainly there is not only one proper designation for the New Testament church. However, all designations must find their authority as set forth in the New Testament. That's right. Now, think about what Kent's saying there in that. So we've demonstrated that you can find churches of Christ in the New Testament. So we've established that. But just take that back a step for Mr. Melton, who's a member of the Baptist Church. Where do I read about the Baptist Church? Where do I read about the Methodist Church? Where do I read about the Lutheran Church? And he's commended people who are in Methodists and Lutherans, and certainly he's a Baptist. I don't read any of those names in the Bible. Not only has he missed it when he says Church of Christ is not in the Scripture, when it is, he... He has this big problem that Kent points out, and he doesn't even address it, that he's wearing a name that's nowhere found in the Bible. Yeah. And if you don't think names matter, why do we call ourselves the Church of Satan? If we're at liberty to call ourselves whatever we want, why not the Church of Satan? We believe we need to refer to ourselves as the Scriptures 
refer to the church in some form or fashion, whatever that, whatever name we may choose, the name needs to be found in the scriptures. We got an email from Wortham, who says uh, he forgot about Paul in one of his letters. Said the churches of Christ salute you. This is concerning what the Bible teaches according to the Baptist preacher that you referred to. So Wortham is on the same page as us. How could he say that? Has he not read his Bible? I think it's a little bit of trickery there. Yeah. All right. All right. So uh, again, uh, I'm I'm pretty upset, but not by the fact that we disagree about our understanding of the Scripture, but about being charged falsely and having positions assigned to us that we don't that we don't believe, and that's happened already. Uh, you know, and at every segment here, we're seeing that that's what he's doing. All right, it was pretty silent. And, and, in the and chat you worry room. that, and you worry that people will read that and accept that without investigation, and and that's what's really sad. All right, uh, silent as a tomb in the chat room tonight. Sign, send in your messages there, or give us a call at eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. All right, so in the next section of his essay, he wants to talk about music in the worship service. Um, uh, it's a little bit longer section, but I'm just going to highlight part of it. He says the Church of Christ position is that we are forbidden to use instruments in worship because the New Testament does not specifically authorize us to use them. He did get our position correct. I think he represented us accurately. Well, that's great. Yeah, that's good. Now he said, But he goes on to say, this is unscriptural logic. There are many things that are used in worship services that are not specifically authorized by the Lord himself. For example, hymnals, microphones, and pitch pipes, which are not authorized in the Bible, but the Church of Christ still uses them in their worship service. So... Let's, let's stop there to, to talk about that. Um, there are expedients to aid us to do authorized things. Uh, for instance, um, a, we're, we're, when we pass the Lord's Supper, the unleavened bread, I think Mr. Melton would agree with us that we're supposed to use unleavened bread in the, in the observer. We'd probably have a number of differences with him about the Lord's Supper. And but I he think might be tempted talk... to write an article, The Church of Christ says you don't have to use unleavened bread, and here's why yeah. they're wrong. <laughs> I don't know, but he, he the, in fact, the next section is about the Lord's Supper. But here's, this, but I think he would agree. I think probably whenever he does observe the Lord's Supper, he, use, he, he has some sort of plate that holds the unleavened bread. Well, so we're still observing the Lord's Supper. We're still taking the right element. The plate is just an expedient or an aid to do what we're authorized to do. We're not doing anything else. The fact that we're using a plate doesn't make us doesn't mean that we're doing something different. It's just an aid in doing what we're authorized and commanded to do. Now, we would say the same thing about hymnals, pitch pipes, uh, I, I, and I suppose microphones, because I think the song leaders typically would speak into a microphone, so everybody could tell you know, we're going to sing this song. But what do we end up doing? We end up doing what we're authorized and commanded to do. We end up singing. Those are expedients. Those are aids in accomplishing that which is authorized. And I think that's what Mr. Melton and so many others just always miss that. We're not changing the act. The act is the same. We're still just singing. We're not singing and playing. We're still just singing when we use those aids to accomplish that purpose. 
And that's, I think that's really important. And to the, uh, the idea that you mentioned there about the Lord's Supper and the fact that he says that we don't believe we should use instruments in worship because the Bible does not specifically authorize this to use them. The Bible has specified and specifically authorized the type of music that we should use, that being vocal. And so, therefore, we are forbidden to do other things. Back to the Lord's Supper. He believes, hopefully, that you need to take of unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. God has specified surely the elements. Would, surely he would object to adding french pe- fries, pe- peanut butter to the bread. Peanut butter or french fries. Yeah. Because, oh, he said unleavened, or we know by uh, uh, instruction, instruction yeah. it was unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. Yeah. And he, I think he would agree with us. So what we do what's specified, we don't change it. What's specified about music and worship, and isn't that how he titled that section, music and worship? Yeah, yeah music and the worship service. Regarding music in the worship services, the New Testament specifies singing, and so that's what we do. If the, if the Scripture just said, have music in your worship services, then we'd be wide open to do whatever we want. But when we when singing is specified, then we're not at liberty to change that. Now, we can have expedient aids to accomplish that, like hymnals, like pitch pipes, but we can't change the action. The act is singing. Music and worship is specified in the New Testament to be singing. And that's why we don't add instruments. Because if we added instruments, we'd be doing something beyond singing. We'd be changing the act. We'd be singing and playing. Monty, any thoughts? It just boils down to what does the Bible do? It tells us to sing. It doesn't say to play. And if we're all to sing, if we were supposed to be playing instrumental music, then the same language that's used here would say we should all be playing instrumental music. And not, you know, some of us don't have any skills in that regard. Uh, some of us really don't have any skills in singing either, but we're still supposed to do it. But anyhow, they're inconsistent about that for the people that would use the instrumental music. But it just boils down to what did God say to do? He said to sing. And if I'm doing something else... Then I'm singing, such as the, I'm singing and playing. And people we've talked to about that before say that, oh, well, we sing and play. Well, forget the and part. We're not told to sing and. We're just told to sing. Yeah, I think exactly right. All right. Um, he, he, he has trouble with the idea of Bible authority here in his, um, his article. He referenced, we're up against a break, but let's get a break. We'll come back. I'll talk about, we'll talk about that. He, he has trouble understanding how to determine what God wants and what yeah, God has yeah, per- yeah. Uh, instructed. We're going to get that on the other side. We'll get this week's bullet point and your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. When faithful brethren try to encourage and admonish wayward Christians, it is not uncommon for them to respond with bitterness and resentment. Once, as an attempt was being made to restore a person who had fallen away, the angry reply was made, Why do I have to explain myself to you? I don't have to give an answer to anyone. We think a few observations are in order. First, in the most absolute and literal sense, the statement is true. No one can be forced to explain his or her actions to anyone else. You are truly at liberty to do as you please. If you do not want to supply information to others, no one can make you do so. However, it should be pointed out that those who go to the time and trouble to approach such weak and faltering brethren in an effort to restore them are doing so out of sincere love and true concern. They're not simply busybodies who delight in interfering in other people's business. They truly care and they want to help. 
In reality, it would be much easier to ignore these situations and let the wayward Christian go off into sin unrestrained and unbothered. But to do so would be a violation of the duties enjoined by God, Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, and it would manifest a total lack of love for the one who has left the Lord, James 5, verses 19 and 20. If the erring brother or sister really understood the motivations of those who are trying to restore them, they would not respond bitterly. Rather, they should be thankful that someone loves them and cares enough to reach out with help and support. Finally, we note that while no one can be compelled to explain their actions to other men, they certainly will be forced to answer before God, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Quote, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10, verse 31. And all who know this, even if they must be reminded from time to time, will be grateful for anything that prepares them for that inevitable judgment, Hebrews 9, verse 27. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile, in South America. And I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. Gracias. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. We're back on the virtual Bible study tonight, and remind you this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Send us an email, questions at collegeview.com, if you have any questions or comments about something you've heard, or you'd like to suggest a future a topic for a future edition of the virtual Bible study. We'd love to hear from you. We're examining the article and tract written by uh, James Melton, The Bible versus the Church of Christ. And uh, so far, he's not used the Bible correctly, nor has he identified our positions correctly. And uh, we're talking about music and worship. I was interested in uh, the comments he made. He found an art, or a tract written by a gentleman by the name of Dub, Dub McClish, uh, explains our position on instrumental music and worship, and he rails on it. He said uh, he, the, this author had written the bumpers and what they're authorized to do. And to that, uh, Mr. Melton said, "To what assembled worshipers do you suppose Mr. McClish is referring?" In Ephesians chapter five nineteen and Colossians three sixteen, the Apostle Paul is instructing Christians in matters pertaining to their personal fellowship with Christ. Not worship services. Well, that'd be wrong too, because it says in Ephesians chapter five, verse nineteen, speaking to. Or excuse me, let me go to Colossians three sixteen. That's the one I want. Colossians three sixteen says, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual song." So there, there is, uh, and I Ephesians think five nineteen speaking, speaking to, to one another. Well, yeah, the King James says speaking to yourselves, but I think new, your yeah, one, newer version says speaking to one another. To one another. Yeah. So that's not my private practice. That is talking about what I do in conjunction with others. And uh, he 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 says neither chapter speaks of assembled worshipers, and neither chapter forbids musical instruments. Does God have to specifically forbid something for it to be unauthorized? Well, we'll, we'll be, if we're not careful, we'll dive off completely into this question of how to establish Bible authority, which we've talked about so many times on the virtual Bible study. But when the, the simple point is, we all understand it, when, when something is specified, then other things are excluded. When I make an order, when I make an online order uh, from a nice... I request one you, of their items. You, I don't have to list all the others. When I specify one... It's understood that all the others are excluded. 
You've updated your yeah. illustration. That yeah, used to be the Sears catalog. I get criticized about yeah, that. They, so. <laughs> okay. Hey, right. I remember Sears catalog. Well, not many it. people do, but that's good. I'm glad we've updated. All right. So, yeah, but it's uh, it's just ridiculous, the the, the argumentation he uses. Okay. okay now, he's he, still on this music subject. He says, the Bible is very clear in stating that the Lord loves good music and praise, uh, uh, good music of praise and worship. And this does include musical instruments. Please check the following references in your Bible and see for yourself. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to read this list. Just pay attention to where the, uh, in your mind, pay attention to where these things are located. Psalm 33, 2 through 4. 1 Chronicles 25, 5 and 6. 2 Samuel 6, verse 5. 1 Chronicles 16:42. Nehemiah 12, verse 27. Psalm 150. Well, now, all of those, obviously, are in the Old Testament. I don't believe he's gotten all of them in the Old Testament. No, I think they're probably a lot more in the Old Testament. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, as we understand, we've talked about this so many times, we're not authorized to act based upon what's taught, commanded, or, Ill- exa- uh, or examples found in the Old Testament. If that were the case, then we, we'd better start bringing our animal sacrifices and yeah. having a, having burnt sacrifices and burning incense and... Uh, 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 participating or in observing dietary restrictions and so forth. Uh, so w- clearly we're not authorized by the Old Testament for our religious practice today. The Old Testament is an important revelation from God. We learn much from it, but it is not our law for practice today. So all of those Old Testament references and more that could be cited don't prove that we should have music in New Testament worship today. Then he mentions Revelation 5, verse 8. Revelation 14.2, Revelation 15.2, which are all references to angels in heaven uh, and, and music that the angels produce. And, and the reference to harps is found there. But the fact of the matter is we're not angels in heaven either. And so uh, what, what angels in heaven do is not authority for what we do. And the, the New Testament authority for what we do is sing. All right. Uh, you know... Go ahead. God loved incense being burnt to him in the Old Testament. He loved that, Damani, but he also was specific about how he wanted that incense offered. Nadab and Abihu learned that message in Leviticus chapter 10. And uh, in Leviticus chapter 10, when it refers to Nadab and Abihu and the punishment that was inflicted on them, it also says they offered strange fire about which God had not commanded them. Well, if we're offering instrumental music... In effect, we're offering strange music about which God had not commanded us. That's what it is. So it's unauthorized worship. Uh, God doesn't want authorized. He's very specific as to what type of worship he wanted, whether it was in the Old Testament. With, I mean, if we study the Old Testament and the giving of the law, he's very specific about every single aspect of their worship, their what they physically did, their temple, their the uh, tabernacle they worshipped in, how all of these things were supposed to be made. And he told Moses over and over again, be careful to do all this according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So what we need to do if we're going to follow Moses' example is be careful to do our worship according to the pattern that's been revealed to us in the New Testament. All right. Got, uh, I want to catch some comments on our Facebook page from our post earlier today talking about this program. Diane says, try checking with other denominations. They add and take whatever they like. Donuts, coffee, basketball courts, um, just one big social club. And they have no authorization from the Bible. Uh, if you think they do, then show scriptures and verses. That's the challenge. 
uh, but, conservative Church of Christ does not add or take away anything from the scriptures. And then Linda adds, we can't add nor take away for the Lord. I appreciate those comments. And, uh, you know, he's, he says, where does the Bible specifically forbid instrumental music? Where does it specifically bid donuts? Where does it specifically forbid, I don't know, whatever you want to add? Where does it forbid specifically forbid child sacrifices and temple prostitutes? I mean, we can get as wild with that as we want to, but it doesn't forbid them, but it doesn't tell us to do them. It doesn't authorize them. All right. All right. So I think, I think that, uh, see, we got Kent's comment. He's got a, 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 a comment okay. on that music question, and we need to move on quickly. He says, Mr. Melton does not understand the silence of the scriptures as per his comments regarding the use of mechanical instrumental music in the worship assemblies or even in the singing of psalms, hymns, or spiritual songs outside the worship assemblies. Neither, neither we nor the scriptures advocate that things must be specifically authorized before they are permitted. That's an important thing to say. We don't advocate that things must be specifically authorized before they're permitted. We believe that there's such a thing as permitted. general authority, and there's such a thing as, as uh, specific authority. Keith goes on, and or Kent goes on, he says, The scriptures affirm that they must be authorized. Such an affirmation is thus inclusive of not only specific, but also generic or gener- general or generic authority. Colossians 3.17, 2 John 9, verses, or 2 John verses 9-11. through 11. The, A careful study of the New Testament proves that the only type of music authorized in the New Testament is that of singing exclusively. Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, as well as all other New Testament passages, regulate both our personal fellowship and with Christ and also our collective action in worshiping God by means of singing, such as underscored by the usage of reciprocal pronouns in these passages. Music is specifically defined as a succession of tones, Pitch pipes and tuning forks, when properly used, do not produce music. They produce tones. The singing does not begin until the pitch pipes are silent. Obviously, Mr. Melton does not know the difference between an expedient and an addition. Something is not required to be specific, explicitly forbidden to be sinful. That which is unauthorized is sinful. Colossians three sixteen and 17, 2 John verses 9 through 11. Mr. Melton looks to be, looks to a non-existent direct operation of the Holy Spirit rather then the completed and divinely confirmed New Testament canon as his final standard of authority. Thank you, Kent. All right, good. We've got to move quickly if we want to get through this tonight. So let's go to the next section of this essay, which is about the Lord's Supper. And in regards to the Lord's Supper, Mr. Melton starts out by saying, the Church of, like the Roman Catholics, the Church of Christ places far too much emphasis on the Lord's Supper. I, I, I just had to comment on that. I mean, I... Uh, what, how much is too much? He just stated that then without really showing why that's, why we are or yeah. what's wrong with it. He, uh, uh, he just sort of throwing a little mud in the water. Yeah, I mean, uh, how could we overemphasize that? I mean, it's, it's taught in the Scripture. It's an important remembrance of the sacrificial death of our Lord. How could we overemphasize that? But anyway, leaving that uh, for what it is. He co- goes on to quote from another tract by a fellow named Fred Gardner, who says, tries to lead his readers to believe that Christians are to observe the Lord's Supper every week. Melton asks, does the Bible teach this? No, it does not, he says. If you'll read Matthew 26, 26 through 28, and 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, you will be reading what the Bible has to say about the Lord's Supper, and you will see nothing at all about observing it on a week-by-week basis. Well, 
Of course, that is true. Matthew 26 and 1 Corinthians 11 do not tell us when to observe the Lord's Supper. It tells us what to do, but doesn't tell us when. Yep. Uh, so we'd have to look elsewhere for finding out the when. And we agree. Matthew 26, 1 Corinthians 11 don't tell us when. Uh, we're not using those passages in order to come to our authority about when. We're using those verses as authority to tell us about what to do. Not when to do it, but what to do. So he says, how did the Church of Christ come up with their week-by-week observance? Uh, he says... Uh, Simply by perverting the scriptures. He says the Bible... Uh, that's what then, he said. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, that's right. Go ahead. So how did the Church of Christ come up with their week-by-week observance? Simply by perverting the scriptures. Okay. He quotes from George Bailey's track, which says, quote, The Bible tells us that upon the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread, Acts 20, verse 7. Since the Lord said that the Lord's Supper was to be observed on the first day of the week, we gather that this was a weekly affair. So he does identify the verse that we go to. that gives us information about when to observe the Lord's Supper, which is Acts 20, verse 7. New Testament Christians, with the participation of the inspired Apostle Paul, came together on the first day of week to break bread. Now, he goes into a rather long argumentation to say that breaking of bread is not the Lord's Supper, that it was a common meal. Uh, and, and, and he confuses the usage of that terminology. The, the, the expression breaking of bread can mean a common meal, but it can also mean the Lord's Supper. We see that usage in Acts chapter 2, 42. The new disciples in Jerusalem continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. There's a reference to the Lord's Supper. In verse 46, they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house that eat their meat with gladness and singleless heart. There's talking about common meals. Context has to bear well, it out. Well, we use the same word we call a supper. We use supper about common meals and about, and about the Lord's, Lord's supper. supper. So it's not a stretch. To... It's exactly right. Okay. Uh, and so in Acts 20, verse 7, actually we we have both things happening there. They met to break bread, which certainly is the Lord's Supper because... Paul had condemned, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul condemns common meals being partaken in the the assembly of the church. So Paul wasn't violating his own inspired instruction. He didn't come together with the Christians in the assembly to have a common meal. That would have been a violation of of his own instruction in 1 Corinthians 11. After that assembly disbanded, later there was the the consuming of some common food, but it was not in the assembly. Acts 20, verse 7 is clearly, and I, actually Mr. Melton is, is showing a considerable lack of scholarship there. I don't think that there's, uh, uh, you'd, you'd have to work hard to find a handful of scholars that would deny that the reference in Acts 20, verse 7 is to the Lord's Supper. It's not just something those Church of Christ people perverted to come up with. It's uh, a... It is commonly what's going and on. He there. says there's no specific day in which Christians are told to observe the Lord's Supper, and nowhere in the Bible are we told to observe it on a weekly basis. And he's wrong about that. Acts 20, verse 7 both tells us when and how frequently to observe the Lord's Supper. Actually, we know that this is authoritative to us because Paul was there, and Paul was participating with them in that. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, The things which you have heard and received and, and excuse me, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. 
Paul's example, the example of inspired men, is authoritative. We have a form of authority by virtue of approved apostolic example in Acts 20, verse 7, is is a case of that. All right. We are past a break. We want to skip it and get to this last point. We've got about 11 minutes here. Yeah, real quickly, let me read what Kent says about this, and then we'll go to to this last point. True, uh, concerning the Lord's Supper, Kent says, True churches of Christ... Uh, Uh, The the church nor New Testament scripture affirm the Roman Catholic sacramental heresy of the celebration of Mass. The New Testament affirms that the Lord's Supper is a memorial of the suffering and death of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and following, such as an ordinance for Christians that must be properly observed and obeyed, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. The Lord's Supper is a component of New Testament worship that is to be observed exclusively on the first day of the week in the worship assembly, Acts 2, 42, Acts 20, Verse 7, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and following. Note that Christians are to assemble to give on the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, 1, 2. By the very same rule of logic that one correctly concludes that this means every first day of the week, the same terminology in Acts 27 means every first day of the week for the Lord's Supper. You get his point there. Mister, I'm sure Mr. Melton takes up a collection every Sunday. Mm, yeah. First uh, uh, Corinthians 6 says we're supposed to lay by and store on the first day of the week. Mr. Melton's going to take that to mean every Sunday when we come together, let's lay by in store. The same reasoning that leads him to take up a collection every Sunday is the reasoning we're using for every Sunday. He says, Mr. Melton falsely concludes that the phrase breaking of bread can never mean the Lord's Supper. There are times when such can refer to a common meal, Acts 2.46, chapter 20 of Acts, verse 11. The context in both of these passages indicate that such were common meals. However, the breaking of bread in Acts 2.42 and Acts 20, verse 7 is that which was accomplished as an act of worship. Is Mr. Melton willing to affirm that Paul and the brethren traveling with him wasted seven days before they ate a common meal? Besides that, Paul, by plenary verbal inspiration in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, condemned the church as a collective group assembling for a common meal. Certainly Christians as individuals may properly eat common meals together, but not as an assembly of the church. I think you're exactly right, Ken. All right. Quickly, to the last point that we're going to look at tonight before we have to quit. All right. The, the next section, the last one we'll be able to cover tonight. And then we're, and, and remember, we're going to reserve the last almost half of this essay is about water baptism and salvation. Lord willing, we're going to tackle that and analyze what Mr. Milton has said in our study next week. But the, the final section for tonight has to do with resurrections and judgments. Uh, Mr. Melton says the Church of Christ believes in a general resurrection and judgment for all people, both saved and lost, at the same time. This is a perversion of truth and is known as amillennialism or no millennium. Well, he's he's pretty well explained what I think the New Testament says on that subject. And the text that I would use is John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Jesus said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I don't know how how we could state that any plainer. He says, we believe in a general resurrection and judgment of all people, both saved and lost at the same time. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said? He goes on and says, this is a perversion of truth, but you just referenced where they're going to be resurrected at the same time. Yeah. Um, it's clear Jesus believed in it. Yeah, Jesus. Those words are from Jesus Himself. Exactly right. So again, uh, he he states what we believe, I think correctly. But then he says that's a perversion 
Well, there's the Bible verse, the Bible verses that teach it. It's not a perversion. Now, what he what he really goes off to in, in in much more detail is talking about the the millennium, and he says the idea that there's not going to be any millennium can't be true because Revelation twenty one through seven clearly tells us that there will be a thousand year reign. We we agree. Don't forget, of course, that Revelation is a book highly symbolic in its language. Uh, uh, even within the context, we don't have time to go into all of it, but even within the context of Revelation 20, clearly symbolic things are mentioned. He talks about a bottomless pit, a chain that could bind Satan, uh, and so forth. So uh, in, in the very context of, of Revelation 20, a lot of symbolism is used, but it talks about a thousand-year reign. The question is, when will that happen? Uh, Mr. Melton believes that the, the, the thousand-year reign of Christ hasn't even begun yet and won't begin until sometime in the future. He's a, he's a premillennialist. He believes that the Lord is going to return, establish his kingdom on earth, reign for a thousand years, and at the end of that thousand years will be the judgment. And, and that's uh, actually... Will be the judgment of the righteous. He, he believes the the wicked have been judged already, but uh, that's just simply not taught in the scriptures. We know that Jesus has established his kingdom and is now reigning as king over his kingdom. In Acts chapter two, uh, it says, uh, "Well, we could read a lot of this, but um, I'm just going to pick up a." Uh, verse 32, Peter was preaching on Pentecost. He says, This Jesus God has raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Wherefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he, which he shed forth, uh, which he hath shed this forth, which ye now see and hear. Uh, so, so he's at the right hand of God exalted. Uh, uh, um, and, and he, he's clear, he makes clear in verse 29 that David wasn't talking about himself when he said he was talking about Jesus. Uh, we believe Jesus is on his throne reigning now. And we are in that, we are in that kingdom. Um, we read earlier Mark 9 verse 1, Jesus said there be some standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. The kingdom came. Jesus is a king over a kingdom. We are in the kingdom. Uh, in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 16, Colossians one thirteen, Colossians one thirteen says we have been delivered from, uh, out of the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. And John, the writer of Revelation, who the, uh, Mr. Melton believes teaches this premillennial view, in verse nine of chapter one of Revelation, John understood that he was in the kingdom currently. He says, "I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom." John yeah. was in the kingdom. He thought he was. He wasn't waiting for that to come in the future. Jesus is our king. His kingdom exists. Uh, as we said earlier, the terms kingdom and church are used interchangeably in the New Testament. So uh, do he calls us a millennialist. That's simply because we don't believe in an earthly reign of Christ over a physical kingdom. And that's true. We don't believe that. The New Testament doesn't teach that. Uh, we believe that Jesus is the king over a kingdom right now, uh, and he is reigning at this present time as king over his kingdom and will until he returns in the final judgment. Can-
Kent quickly, uh, Monty just met. Kent said, in the future there will be only one general resurrection of all the dead. John 5, 25 through 29, Acts 23, verse 6, Acts 24, verse 15. At the final coming of Christ, there will be only one general judgment. Matthew 25, 41 through 46, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Premillennialism is a deadly heresy that attempts to rewrite God's scheme of redemption, relegates the New Testament church, the kingdom to a stopgap measure, gives false hope to fleshly Israel, makes void the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, and reestablishes the Old Testament law of Moses. Older preachers stated that pre meant before, millennial meant 1,000 as a 1,000 literal years, and ism means it ain't. As one older preacher formally stated, it ain't worth, it ain't with a capital ain't. It ain't with a capital ain't. Oh, with a capital ain't. Oh, right. I didn't put the emphasis there as I should. Monty, go ahead. You know, the the New Testament teaches us that when Jesus returns, that we're going to rise to meet him in the air, and it says, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. It never says or implies that he's going to set foot on this earth again. If we're going to rise to meet him in the air, and that's where we're always going to be is off of this world, because, uh, the Bible clearly teaches when he comes back, this world's going to be destroyed, consumed with fire. So this premillennial idea cannot be correct. All right. uh, there's a, we've got whole programs in our archives on premillennialism, and you'd be welcome to, to listen to some of those. But there's just a lot of arguments that's, that explain why it couldn't be so. And one of them is that Jesus is a descendant of Jeconiah and and the, the prophecies of the Old Testament say that no man of his seed will ever set reign on a throne on earth again. And there's just lots of arguments that prove that the theory of premillennialism can't be. All right. So we've looked at half of the article roughly tonight. Uh, next week we want to get to the part of the, uh, the article, Water, Baptism, and Salvation. And he disagrees with us and makes some outrageous claims one of the more outrageous claims, and I've never heard it before, but he claims that Peter got it wrong in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, when he told them they needed to repent and be baptized for their mission of sins. Peter didn't know what he was talking about, according to James Melton. He said yeah. he got it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> That's oh, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Monty, any final comments tonight? Well, he, he makes several false accusations about us that we've explained tonight. Uh, if that's what he's trying to use to prove his point, starting out with a lie isn't a good way to prove your point. Uh, we've demonstrated from the scriptures what we believe and why we believe he's wrong, and he can't do this. And we just need to look at the Bible, take everything in context and the totality of everything it says on each subject, and go with what that says. Uh, it, we're not we're not timid at all about defending what we believe, but we don't. I, I it always is very. I don't know what word to use. It's more than frustrating. It's downright annoying to be misrepresented uh, and arguments made against what we supposedly believe when it's not even what we believe. And he's done that throughout this this essay. All right. So you want to be back here this time next week for that important discussion. Monty, thanks for being here tonight. Thank you, Jake. Dad, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jake. Thank you for joining us. And again, we hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first to your life, study His inspired word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. 
Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the Internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.